Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to two of the contributors to Lines to the Horizon, an anthology of short non-fiction narratives representing the diversity of surf culture. The contributors include Sally Breen, Emily Brookman, Sam Carmody, Madeleine Dickey, Jake Sandner and Mark Smith. Welcome Sam and welcome Madeleine. Thanks Greg. Thanks Greg, great to be with you. In the forward to Lines to the Horizon, Australian author Jock Sarong notes that nobody can agree whether surfing is a sport or a culture, essential entwining with nature itself, a dance or a form of meditation or none of these. So Madeleine, what's your reaction to that? Look, I think in my own work, uh, both in my first novel, Tropo, and in this short piece, Following the Birds, I would probably go with the culture answer. I'm really interested in my work in teasing out the uglier aspects of the Australian surf culture. So things like our sense of entitlement, our sense of ownership, our aggression, our insistence on etiquette in the surf, and then our disregard for etiquette as well when it suits us. And I think these aspects of the Australian surf culture become sharper and more apparent when we travel overseas for waves. So my piece is a, is a travel piece. And I think that this kind of travel and this sort of surf travel allows you to consider your own culture with greater, greater objectivity. Sam, what do you think of that statement? I don't know. It's funny how um, Jock says there's sort of no one can agree. And I feel like I sometimes can't agree even in a single surf session, what surfing is to me even, because it's a very intimate kind of personal, almost it can be a spiritual thing at times. I also, like Madeleine, are very critical of these really ugly parts of the culture as well and this sort of aggression. But at the same time, you find yourself buying into it in a surf session. You, you know, you might be surfing a particularly big break and it's all about kind of performance, you know, in that environment. So I have this kind of inner conflict a lot where I think I participate with surfing you know as a sport but I kind of hate the idea that it is a sport um I love it for what it brings to my life but also loathe so much about the this kind of white troubled masculinity that seems to often pervade a lineup so surfing is a thing that I, I yeah it's a very unusual conflicted joy in my in my life and Sam I think what like what I kind of found reading lines to the horizon is that each piece is so different. It's so unique, but it also kind of plays to different aspects of that. Like there's pieces that are about the competition side of surfing, pieces like your own, which is so deeply personal. And then pieces perhaps like Sally's, which look at those more commercial aspects. So it's quite mm. an exciting, I kind of thought maybe the pieces would all sort of be a little bit similar, but they're not, they're really, really varied. And it, it makes it quite an exciting anthology, I think, as a whole. It sort of shows you how diverse surf culture and surfing really is. Yeah, I agree. Some people would regard it as an extreme sport, but to me it also seems like a, a bit, if I can turn that around, a sport of extremes. What do you think, Sam? Surfing, I guess, is what, what one wants to make it. You know, you can make it the most sort of unextreme activity 
different surfers have very different approaches. We have extremes in, in our own family. My, I got into surfing through my older, my dad and my older brother. My older brother is your sort of quintessential adrenaline junkie, mad person. And he has always been about trying to drag us into these very uncomfortable spaces, you know, whether it's somewhere very kind of remote, um, you know, always trying to find a place where there'll be no one else, some remote peninsula kind of you're in there in the, in the dark before the sun's even come up or the biggest possible wave we can find. That is very much his approach is kind of almost always seeking a kind of discomfort, which I think again is this strange, um, almost sometimes a nihilism to surfing, which might again be toxic, I suppose. And this sort of masculine thing about flirting with self-destruction or something. I'm not like that at all. I, I kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of surfer that I think deeply loves just a, a nice two, three foot swell and a kind of a friendly bank on some beach break. And I don't know, having a wave with my dad or something is my idea of a good time. I think I'm a bit like your older brother. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much like in terms of hunting like really big stuff because I'm a bit of a wimp. But in terms of that mix of adrenaline and danger and then, you know, travelling to kind of dangerous parts of the world, looking for waves, mm. I guess sort of reflecting on some of my surf travel over the last kind of 12 or 13 years. Some of it's been in West Java where I've gone out to a really remote spot and then seen like a, a boatload that belonged to asylum seekers wrecked on the reef, like on a reef that I would be surfing at otherwise. Um, I've sort of slept on my board bag on the edge of the skeleton coast in Namibia waiting for swells to turn up or on another trip to the Dominican Republic just in a mad race to kind of lay eyes on this big swell that was hitting the next day. I ended up sliding down an almost vertical hill with a motorbike on top of me, just being in such a rush to get to the surf. So I think I, I definitely feed on that more extreme adrenaline charged experience for me. Are they sort of things that you consider every time you go out to surf? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like Sam, you, you write really beautifully about that sort of fear of sharks and that that there's always kind of that sense of danger every time you set foot in the water. I've had a phobia of sharks since I was really little. Um, my grandma was responsible because she gave me and my brother a book called Sharks, Silent Hunters of the Deep when we were about five years old, this Reader's Digest that had these coronial photographs of shark attack victims and things. Um, and I'm always imagining an attack in progress. But like that's a kind of impossible aspiration to have a surf that is without risk. Also... For someone who is a bit less of an adrenaline junkie, I think there is something about that that enlivens the whole experience for me. And it probably is why I keep returning it to it, that being in extremis, you know, being in this environment that ultimately you don't have control over. Yeah, I think there's very much a pleasure in that. I wonder if our relationship is a little bit different to the water as well, being in WA. I guess I was thinking about Emily's piece. She sort of talks about how, like, when she goes for a surf, she just goes for a surf. And kind of connecting with those other sports that she writes about, like ocean swimming and yachting, kind of makes her consider the ocean in a different way. Whereas I know certainly where I live in Exmouth, we fish, spearfish, snorkel, surf, go for craze, like everything. We're really sort of connected to what's happening under the water as well as on top of the water. That kind of leads me to the next aspect that I'd like to talk about, which is the language that's really exclusive to surfing, if you like. Uh, where does it come from, if you know where it comes from? What, what are its origins and how does it express the act and the culture of surfing better than, you know, just a standard everyday vocabulary? 
Yeah, surfing language. It's an it's an interesting one. I think there's been a bit of a change in the way I've used surfing language. I mean, it's become more apparent that what we grew up with was very much this, almost this language of war. Um, a good surfer would smash or destroy a wave. You say, oh, that guy just destroyed that section. Or even like that thing of riding through a barrel, like with water going over you, it would be knifing the barrel. It's this the slicing and dicing and ultimately it's a violence that you're committing on a wave and that was always a language I used as a kid growing up because that's what was around me all the time um I like to think there's been a shift perhaps in that language that um this idea of dominance and dominating a natural place is being altered somewhat because this greater participation of women's surfers might be slowly changing that culture for the better what do you reckon Madeleine? I really agree with you actually on that shift in the language. I'm not too sure about how it sort of evolves. I do listen to the Ain't That Swell podcast, which the language that uh, those two presenters use is so off the wall that if you weren't Australian and probably if you weren't a surfer, you wouldn't understand what they were talking about at all. It's so creative and, and out there. Um, but I think that definitely the the fact that there's more women surfers that we've got equal pay with WSL now, that there's a women's big wave tour is really shifting, probably shifting the language and shifting the whole culture of the surf, of surfing in a really, really positive way. We've been talking a lot about surf culture and Australian culture, that surfing might be as much about observation, a culture of observation and the natural world, the people, the society, but in a way through this prism of surfing. And if I can get you to read a passage from your contribution, Following the Birds, I think that actually illustrates that quite well. It's all about your trip to Mexico's Guerrero coast, and it kind of takes the form of a travelogue or a diary or maybe elements of both. And there's clearly a strong connection between surfing and travel for you. One morning in 2014, some surfers were driving out to the ranch, a once-secret wave on Mexico's Guerrero coast. They passed rain-eating concrete and a stinking mango factory. They wondered what the surf would be like. On a good day, the wave ran for nearly a kilometre with barrel sections and a workable, whackable wall. As they approached a bridge, the driver slowed. Up ahead, a row of dead bodies dangled by their necks. I hear this story in my first week in Mexico and suspect I should have done better research before leaving. Sure, I'd read about the cartel bosses, fabled for feeding human hearts to their teenage employees, and the boiled bones in the country's north, evidence of ritual cannibalism among the hijimes. And I'd read about the cuisine with its dizzyingly difficult names like chilaquiles and chapulines and mole and mezcal. But I hadn't bothered to check the Australian government's advice for Guerrero, hadn't reconsidered my need to travel. And even if I had, the promise of exotic waves generally trumps risk. I think surf travel is a bit like following the birds. Two, my last Sunday at home on Western Australia's Mingaloo Reef brings conditions locally described as glamour. The wind has finally quit punishing the desert and the water off the back of the reef has turned a thrilling blue, a shade promising pelagic fish. My husband Tom and I launched the tinny at our favourite reef pass. We leave behind the rasping throats of gullies several months dry. We leave behind the land that once cradled the most ancient beaded necklace in the world. It's not long before we're following gannets and white terns and shearwaters. The birds' smoke-quick shadows skate the water, 
draw us toward the horizon. In our wake, the lines from our trolling rods dip and sway. Then a hit, the waspish scream of the reel, the rod doubles and Tom shouts, fuck, we're on, it's massive. Maybe we foul hooked a shark, a manta, a dolphin. The tinny's listing from side to side. The curses are coming thick and quick and salty. Suddenly a marlin lit up with colours, vivid as poison, streaks across the sky. Over the next 40 minutes, as Tom works the fish toward the boat to unhook it, I think about the birds, how they're a dangerous addiction. When I travel for waves, I carry the birds with me in my brain, in my breast, they toss restless. Tow me from the solid footing of land into the unknown toward the promise of the next hookup, perhaps a wave barreling pink under prickly pear at dawn, or an exhibition in which violence is given form through embroidery, or a shady plaza in the mountains where an old man sees me crying and offers his hand for a dance. My last weekend on the Ningaloo coast is sublime, but once those wings start beating, they're impossible to ignore. Thanks, Madeleine. That's a really interesting passage. But one thing that strikes me about that is you've written about the sea, but you've also written about the connection between the land and the sea. Yeah, look, I think particularly in Western Australia where and where I live, at, you know, in the desert, but it's kind of this incredible desert landscape at the edge of this incredibly rich kind of ocean on the edge of this beautiful reef. So there's a really stark contrast, I think, between those two things. And that's how, yeah, that intersection between land and sea is, is quite important to me, for sure. Sam, I'd like to talk about your contribution now, and it's called Hold Down. And I'd like you to read something from it. But can you tell me first what a hold down is? Uh, a hold down is uh, kind of what happens, uh, you know, often takes a fairly big wave to do it but it's you know i think a lot of listeners would be familiar with the idea of a wipeout and um and everyone's probably been bowled over in the kind of the, the shallows by a shore break or something um but a hold down is is when a wave simply just holds you under the surface after after it's kind of dealt with you and and rumbled you around and at the, the moment where you think you should be let up and be able to swim to the surface it keeps pulling you downward I guess there's this downward pressure of water still moving towards the seabed and you're a part of that and it's this really disconcerting thing about you know you're not still not in control of your destiny even though everything seems to have subsided you're still being pulled towards the seabed and away from the surface and away from oxygen and so it's a a really kind of uncomfortable moment and um yeah, it's often a time we're having all these kind of conversations with yourself about you know try and relax <laughs> Um, and just have faith that it will let you go. The short bit I'm going to read is about the hold down. But for me, the whole piece was all about surfing, but it was also about this exploration of a very difficult time um, in my life. In quite recent years, just uh, experience with major depression. And I found that that surfing environment really useful to kind of as a way of trying to approach something that's just difficult to put into words. So this is a very short passage about, um, about a hold down. During a hold down, the thing that unsettles me the most is the momentary blindness, how the combustion of water and air and misting sand creates a sort of visual static, a flickering screen, and one loses any sense of just where in the water column one is. A really bad wipeout, a snapped leg rope, a busted eardrum can leave you in doubt of which way is up at all. 
Surfers have paddled over to a stricken comrade to find them swimming underwater, clawing down towards the bottom. Their instincts to survive, suddenly the thing endangering them most of all. Depression, I think, is something like that. The utter disorientation and the sudden untrustworthiness of your own instincts. How your efforts to protect yourself might actually be the deadliest thing. Madeleine's contribution is more about a, a search for waves or a search for adventure, a, a search for different cultures and societies and reactions. But yours is a, another kind of search. It's, it comes across more like a memoir or even a series of reflections on a childhood with strong associations with the sea. So while Madeleine's story is about waves, yours seems to be about a search for something else altogether. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think it is. It is a search for a better understanding of, of oneself. A consistent battle, I think, that I think anyone who's had the old euphemism is, was melancholy is what people have talked about it. And I remember my grandma, people referencing her melancholy. Um, and the sea, I guess, was a useful thing as a way to kind of write towards that because I think the ocean has always provided a sort of backdrop to that. You know, it's the place I've always gone when I've life has been difficult um, I've often escaped to the sea you know um, whether that was in high school or you know those periods of times in at university where I didn't really know what was going on I just you know I wouldn't go to classes for weeks and I would often just bobber about in the ocean so I find that surfing's been a place where I've I've gone to for a sort of refuge for better or worse um, but also the ocean is very useful kind of poetically because it's something that for me, as we sort of mentioned my phobia of sharks, it's filled with things that um, I'm afraid of and are ultimately kind of mysterious and are underneath the surface and it's sort of this, these shadows around you. And and I think I kind of what my memoir sort of gets to is this sort of this, this search and this realisation that confronting and trying to heal oneself um, when it comes to things like mental health, often is about this sort of going underneath the surface. Sam Carmody and Madeleine Dickey, thank you very much for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. It's been a really interesting and educational discussion. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thanks a lot. I've been talking to Madeleine Dickey and Sam Carmody about Lines to the Horizon, Australian surf writing. It's published by Fremantle Press and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.